This is Michael Zuber, and I just wanted to thank you for listening to my One Rental at a Time podcast. Did you know that I took the time to document the entire process I used to learn my market and actually still use today? I released it as a $199 online course via Teachable, and it is called How to Get Started One Rental at a Time. With that, you get access to my private Facebook group and can join our group mentoring calls every Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific. You can find it on my website at onerentalatatime.com. Now on with the show. Hey, everyone. It is Wednesday. And you know what that means? That means we bring back our expert, Matt, the mortgage guy. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well. So one of the things we're going to do today together is do one long video. We're going to bring up 10 to 12 terms that really have relevance in your business that sometimes... I don't know, raise questions. Maybe the individual investor doesn't know, home buyer doesn't know, they hear them, but they don't really know how it applies. Uh, does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, for sure. Because because like me and you talked about a lot of these terms, it, very common questions for me, yeah. conversations with investors and, and buyers. All right, cool. So let's knock them out. The one that I get most often is points. What What is points? Should you pay points? What are zero points? What are two points? What's a point? When does it happen? Do I pay them? Do I not? What, what's that all about? Sure. I feel like I should be good at this one because it's, it's, it's common. And, and when I was thinking of a list of, of mortgage terms, it was at the top. Because yep. points is, is the most common question people hear. Oh, do I pay points? Do I not? And, and they don't even know what a point is. So let's define a point. Okay. If you have a $300,000 loan, one point equals 1%. So a one point on a $300,000 loan is $3,000. So if you hear half a point, it's $1,500. If you hear two points, $6,000. A point equals 1% of the loan amount. So now that we've got that out of the way, when would I pay points? Why should I pay points? Um, something to help people clarify that I explained to folks is you come to me, you've got a 760 credit score, you've got a 70% um, loan to value, and we'll talk about that term later probably, um, and um, you're doing a rate and term refinance. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I plug that into a system and the system spits out 2.625. That's the only option we have. Mm. You've got a rate sheet that starts at 1.99% and might go to 4%. And on this rate sheet, if 2.625, just for example purposes, is zero points, zero cost being paid for that rate, as you go down, 2.5, 2.375, 2.25, it might be a half a point and then a point and then a point and a half. So paying points is, is spending money up front to get a lower interest rate. And sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it makes little to zero sense. And the warning I think that people should hear is don't get, don't fall in love with an interest rate because it's used a lot in marketing. And if it costs zero points for 2.625, but then a fancy piece of mail that comes in the mail comes and says, we've got a 30 year fixed at 2.25, jump up and down. You do a couple spins, special offer just for me. I can't wait. You get two weeks into this loan process. And then you look in box A of your loan estimate. You're like, wait, 2.25 points. What does that mean? Hmm. Oh, $6,750. And you can talk to a loan professional that's going to give you honest advice and say, you're paying $6,700 for that 2.25. If it only saves you $43 a month, 
it's going to take you 13 years to break even. And not only that, the $43 a month you're saving, 43 bucks isn't worth what 43 bucks is today in 2034. I can promise you that, especially with the the money printers, the machine gun money printers we got going on right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So again, when I when I hear points, obviously we're it's really around owner occupants and all of that, but we might as well hit hard money, right? Hard money investors, right? If you're a fix and flipper today, you're buying an asset that can't go traditional bank financing, you're likely going to pay points as well, but they're going to be three and four points. And what they're going to do in that situation is, let's just say you're you're looking to apply it for a hundred thousand dollars in a hard money loan. They're not going to ask you for the $4,000. They're going to take it right off the loan, right? They're going to write the loan for hundred grand, but they're going to only give you 96 in a simple, simple loan. Right. So, so again, points are how lenders make money. That's, that's really what I want you to take from this. And then again, as a homeowner, you should do a break-even analysis. Everybody has their own rules of thumb. What I tell people is, hey, if you're going to live in your, if this is your forever home, and, and you can get the payback, you know, again, a point's three grand and you save enough where your payback somewhere between three and five years might be worth it. If it's 15 years, it's a joke. Right. And just, just for some quick clarification too, when you come to a mortgage broker like me, whether you pay zero points, one point, two points, it, it doesn't matter to me because mm-hmm. I'm brokering the loan and I'm getting paid off what the loan amount is. Right. And so you know, my only job as a broker is to find people the deal that makes the most sense. And a lot of times that's the conversation. How long do you plan on staying? No way on God's green earth would I recommend you pay points that have a 13 year break even, <laughs> yeah. but maybe as an investor, we, we look at the rate sheet and to be quite honest, a lot of rate sheets for investor loans have the best execution at maybe a half a point to a point cost Mm -hmm. because zero points might be 3.875. And if one point's 3.125, then we're talking a hundred dollars and it's a $2,900 cost. Well, in that case, yeah, this is a long-term hold. You know, for sure you're keeping it longer than three years. Let's pay the point for Mm 3.125. And so um, it's really something that you just have to be cognizant of and have somebody who has your best interest in mind talking you through it because the the fact of the matter is when you've got these big, huge companies that are marketing low interest rates, they know it makes people excited. And so yeah. they're going to advertise the low interest rate. They're going to plug in a couple points with no regard for, does this make sense for your specific scenario? Yeah. Well, you've brought up a bunch of terms I've already noted down. We're going to go to next. Let's talk about that rate sheet first. Cause again, I don't think the average investor and certainly not the average homeowner really realizes it must be every day. And I'm sure some volatile days, it's twice a day. You get a rate sheet from your different you know, institutions. And again, it is a sheet, right? You get a criteria, right? If the borrower is these things, they can have you know these five, six, seven different options. And it is your knowledge, your experience to look at that rate sheet and have those discussions and be in the daily trenches watching all of this that that makes this valuable right right yeah and that's the you know if you if you can picture in your head all the rates at every eighth 2.125 and they all have a cost associated with them or as you get to a higher rate they've got a credit associated with them and that's going to change a couple times a day Mm -hmm. so if you talk to somebody and says 2.625 is zero points today it might be a quarter point cost tomorrow, it might have a quarter point of, of rebate to you. Um, and, and nobody really knows what's going to happen. And, uh, 
And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's one thing. God, I had something else I was thinking about as you were saying that. As well, why, why you think about that? The other thing I want to highlight again is, is you're here helping this channel grow. I want to make sure people realize if you're in California, you're looking to buy a home, buy an investment or do a refi, uh, do me a favor, reach out to Matt, the mortgage guy. He has given his time every week to this channel. Uh, so Matt, uh, how do you want people to reach out to you? Um, by email is cool. Matt, M-A-T-T -T at mattthemortgageguy.com. And even if you're outside of California, um, let's let's plug the, the YouTube channel. If you, you if you find Matt, the mortgage guy on YouTube, go ahead and plug into that. I've been, I've been trying to put out, I was doing investing and mortgage and real estate and a bunch of stuff. I've been doing really mortgage heavy content. And I think there's, there's plenty of stuff um, like the stuff we're talking about today where people just need to know, should know there's bad information out there. So yeah. honest, straightforward mortgage advice is mostly what you'll find on my channel. So, um, come awesome. on, come on over and subscribe when you get a chance. There you go. Cool. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about again, mentioned in the, in the opening, we talked about points is LTV or loan to value. Why don't you talk about that? Sure. So loan to value is your home's value versus your loan. And so for a simple example, if you've got a $400,000 house and a $300,000 loan, that $300,000 loan is 75% of the value. Mm -hmm. So loan to value is 75%. And that factors into what rate you get. Because if you are doing a refinance and you've got, you know, you only owe 200 on that $400,000 loan, that 50% loan to value is less risk for the lender. So you're going to get a better deal. If you're borrowing 320, and you're 80%, you're higher risk to the lender of, of default. And so they're going to charge you a slightly higher rate. So that's, that's what that loan to value term means. And for whatever reason, Mike, something that comes up quite a bit is people don't understand when, when they're looking at that and they go, okay, I owe 300, my house is worth 400. And if you tell somebody, most lenders won't let you do a cash out refi above 80% loan to value. So 320 is your max loan amount on a house worth 400. For whatever reason, I get people that say, I owe 300, it's worth four. That's 100,000 in equity. I can borrow 80% of that. So I can take 80,000 out. You can't borrow 80% of the equity you have in your house. You can borrow up to 80% of what the house is worth as a loan amount. Mm -hmm. so, so that's something that, um, I've had that conversation dozens of times. So take, take what your house is worth, multiply that by 80%. And that is what 80% loan to value is. Yeah. There's two things I want to talk about with this term LTV or loan to value in the market that we're in today. One from an investor standpoint, one from an owner occupant standpoint, I want to stress it's loan to value, not loan to price. If that makes sense. In, in the world that we just left 2020, I can't tell you how many owner occupants are adding escalation clauses and removing appraisal conditions. So for example, just for simple math, let's use your example of a home worth 400 and who says worth, it's the appraiser, right? Let's just say that. And let's say that you're gonna get a 25% or a 75% LTV or 80% to use your example. So you get 320. But because you've waived the appraisal condition, because you had the escalation clauses, you agree to pay 500. Willing buyer, willing seller. It's a market, a market is made. Some people think that they can go borrow 80% of price. Wrong. You are borrowing 80% of value. So in this example, you will be on the hook for $180,000 at the closing, right? 
I, I need you to hear that because again, in a hot market with no inventory, adding escalation clauses mean if you're an owner, you're going to bring a lot more money to the table. So I just wanted to make that point. Right. Yeah. That one's a pretty extreme case. Yes. But, 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 but the point is that, yeah, it's, it's, it's loan to value, not loan to what you're willing to pay. Yeah. I just want to make And again, I like using extremes because people like to argue at the margins. So I just put out a hundred K example and then hopefully nobody argues. The second thing is for investors. And really it was last year, maybe a late 2019 Burr was really, really hot, but the market was evolving. I think Burr is going to come back into focus, but let's have this conversation about Burr. So Burr starts with a purchase. And if you don't know, let me tell you, a purchase money appraisal is not as conservative as a refi appraiser because a purchase money appraisal has two willing parties. A refi appraiser has you and a bank. So I guarantee you a, a, a refi appraiser is going refi appraisal is going to be more conservative without question, probably to the tune of 10 to 15% more conservative. And the reason I want to bring this up is because there are lots of burrs that blow up because you can't get your money out. Or more importantly, you can't get your investors' money out. So be very, very careful with burr. It may not be a problem if the market takes off again, but Realize a purchase money appraiser or LTV on a an appraisal on a refi appraisal is going to be conservative. Would you agree? Oh, for sure. And I see thousands of appraisals every year. One thing I'll add to that too is is a really common question for investors. I talked to tons of people doing Burr. Anybody who doesn't know, buy, rehab, refinance, rent, or, or rent, rent and refinance, refi. repeat, yeah. all, all that stuff. Um, something that folks don't understand is if you're coming to get conventional financing after you've purchased, and for this example, let's say you buy with hard money, you invest some money into it, then you're coming to refinance. Keep in mind that if you do that within a six month time frame, as a lender, no matter what the thing is worth after you rehab it, I can't lend you more than a hundred percent of what you bought it for. And I'll give you an example. You buy it for 200, you invest 70 K in rehab, it's worth 400 and you're saying, okay, I'm ready for 75% cash out refinance. I want to, I want to pull out 300, all my investment back. Mm -hmm. If you try to do that after four months, the lender is going to say the guidelines say that our max loan amount is the 200 K you purchased it for. And for whatever reason, there's so much information online that says, oh, you can bake in some rehab costs into the final settlement statement, or you could do this, you know, magic wizardry very unlikely that happens. The more likely scenario is one, you wait six months and then the lender says, okay, we can take the new appraised value. But like Mike said, a refinance appraisal is, is going to be conservative right now. Mike, I can't tell you the number of people I talked to. My neighbor sold for 580. You know, this house that's not as nice as mine is worth 560. The refinance appraisal came in at 540 because the, the refinance is one, taking comps over the last six months. And we all know that today is not the same as September of 2020 was. Mm -hmm. And two, when you list for 549, you've got 20 people bidding to get your property. It's going to sell for 585. They either have an appraiser that's a little bit more aggressive on the purchase, or they just make up the difference. Whatever the case, mm -hmm. the refinance appraisal versus the purchase appraisal, you're hundred percent correct that it's going to um, be more conservative. And so think about that with your burr, um, you know, 
most investors just, you know, they're very optimistic. And so it's like, I bought this three months ago. I put 30,000 into it. Now it's worth double. And I'm thinking to myself, well, we'll see what the appraisal is at. Yeah. So let's just go there. Uh, let's talk about appraisals, why they're there, who they protect, what happens. Um, because again, and, and something else you, folks you need to realize is the appraisals of 2021 are not the appraisers, appraisals of 2008. There was a lot of rules and regulations adopted after the housing crash because frankly, there was some funny business going on in 07, 08 kickbacks and, and, and all of those things. Uh, so let's talk about appraisals. Why, why, they, why, do our, why are appraisers and appraisals an important part of the mortgage market? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the, the, the banks are, are requiring them. And a lot of folks too, they're doing a 5% down, hmm. you know, home, first time home buyer loan or something is just like, you know, they're not realizing the bank's putting up 95%. You're putting up five. They want to be really sure that this, this asset that's backing their investment is worth what everybody's saying it's worth. And so, you know, every single, well, I shouldn't say every single, there's, there's, there's scenarios where you get an appraisal waiver if there's 20% down or so, but you know, for most people who are buying, putting three, five, 10% down, you're going to need an appraisal. The, the appraiser is going to come out and it's going to look at, you know, neighborhood comps and make a few adjustments, but it's going to give the bank assurance that this thing is worth. And, and that's something that's, that's commonly misunderstood. Is, is the buyer thinks that this is an appraisal for them, which I guess to a certain extent it is, right? They're buying a house. They want to know what somebody appraises it for, but it's really protecting the bank. Yeah. When I look at an appraisal, I actually think it protects three people, or at least it can, it can potentially protect three people. So the one you've already hit, right? The lender, right? The person who's ponying up 95 or 97 or 80 or 60 or whatever it is. Whoever's putting up the rest of the cash wants to know what that asset's worth. And they have their risk profile that says, hey, in this example, I will lend this money because I will get this rate back. That ties back to rate and term, right? That's that's one of the variables in rate and term. The lower the risk, the lower the rate. The higher the risk, the higher the rate. Is that fair? Yep. Number two, I do want you to realize as a buyer, appraisers can appraisals can protect you from a mistake. It can. It doesn't happen a lot in a hot market. But I have seen markets because I've been investing for 20 years. I remember 09 to like 11 or 12 where the market was like this, not like this. And when you left the appraisal condition in there, there were plenty of times where the appraisal came in light or lower. And because it's in the contract, you can go back. And oh, by the way, I went to back to the banks 20 times maybe and got lower prices because again, it was part of the purchase. I had to agree. In this case, the bank was the seller, so they didn't care, right? They just said, fine, whatever the appraisal was, go. Uh, so again, appraisals, appraisals, assuming you leave it in the contract, can protect the buyer from overpaying. Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. Who, who was the third person you were thinking about? The third one is Wall Street or whoever is doing it. Because what happens for most banks is, yes, they're the lender, but realize they sell it quickly, right? Maybe right. once a quarter, they create a package. And Wall Street buys loans at discounts, right? A bank says a loan for 30 years, but a bank will sell 10 or 50 or 100 or 10 million or whatever it is to Wall Street. They will take some kind of discount. And again, the discount will vary based on the criteria of all the loans. They will, they will get a bigger discount if all the loans are 97%. They will get a lower discount if they're 70%. So again, Wall Street will be looking at the appraisals, at least at some level, to create their bonds or their whatever they're calling them today. So again, the appraisals are in there to 
A, create an independent third-party view of the asset. And then that review is used potentially by three people, in, in my opinion. Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I like what you said about protecting the buyer and some buyers, you know, that, that being kind of a, a red flag or an indicator, you probably shouldn't pay this amount. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's happens with investors quite a bit when they go to get hard money and the hard money lender says, uh-uh. your ARV is a dream. You know, exactly. it's, there's no way this thing's going to sell for 450. So here's our numbers. And, and it's probably saved thousands of investors, millions of dollars, having a hard money lender say, no, this thing doesn't make sense. And so um, that's, that's one of the backstops on the front end for an investor. When the, when the person lending the money doesn't want to lend it to you, it's probably too risky. I think that is very well said. So next up, I want to talk about uh, a term uh, that's thrown on a lot about. It's definitely, at least in my experience, one of the key variables in a mortgage loan, and that is debt to income. Sure, sure. Yeah, debt to income ratio simplified means what you make versus what your, your debts are. And debts include what you currently owe and have monthly payments on, plus the mortgage. And so um, just to keep it super simple, let's say that a lender is going to allow you to have a debt to income ratio of up to 50%. Um, and, I'll, and I'll talk about the two different debt to income ratios because there's a front end and there's a back end. And the back end includes all your debts. So you've got student loans, a car payment, some credit card payments, and your new mortgage. All of these things combined, if they total... $4,700 and you make $10,000 a month, then you've got a 47% debt to income ratio and it works. I just want to make sure one thing as we go forward, that 10,000 you just talked about, is that gross or net? Gross. Gross. Well, here's, here's the clarifying gross. If you're a W2 employee, right? W2. And, and I had this conversation yesterday. I love self-employed borrowers. I'm, I'm, I'm an S corp. I'm self-employed. I love entrepreneurship getting a loan as a self-employed borrower is harder and the rules aren't fair. And I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. I just have to follow them. And, and so it's weird. I talked to somebody yesterday that, you know, both husband and wife work for the state and he's like, sure. I make 8,200 a month, but after CalPERS and stir, you know, all this stuff I'm paying into, I don't nearly take home that as much as that. I say, I agree. Um, and I know, but 8,200 is what the lenders are going to use. Conversely, you're self-employed and your store has 570,000 in, in gross income, but you write off your, you know, expenses and whatnot. And, and your bottom line is 82,000. That's, that's what we have to use for your yearly income. So um, quick clarification on that. But once we have that number for what you make, lenders are going to look at the backend ratio I just talked about, which is a collection of all the bills plus the mortgage. And they're also going to look at your front end ratio, which is just the mortgage payment. So of those $4,700 a month in payments, if 3,200 of it or 32% of, of your income is the mortgage, that's your front end. So in the system that we're going to plug in and, and have it spit out, approve eligible, tell us whether or not the loan's going to go, it's going to say 32 front end, 47 back. And depending on other factors like credit score, and, and loan to value, it's, it's going to tell us whether or not the thing approves. And I'll tell you that mortgage guidelines have got a little bit stricter in 2020. I've seen some lenders actually go back though, Mike, where they tightened up to 43 or 45. Now they're back to 50. Mm. Some of the lenders that were 
um, squeezing the the FHA and VA, the the government loans back to 50 or are back to 57 or 55, where wherever the automated system will approve it. But know that I think as a general rule, you probably don't want a mortgage. And so even if the system might approve a 38, a 39 front end and a 48, 50 back end, um, I always like to throw that out the window and just talk to people about what is comfortable. Cause it, yeah. cause if you talk to somebody and, and you make 10,000 gross at the state and you only take home 7,300 of that, mm-hmm. if you've got a $3,900 mortgage payment, that's going to be. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I remember, and again, I wrote about this in my book. One of my, one of my mistakes in the book is I, I did the first uh, cash out refi, which again, will be a term we talk about momentarily. And I just took the maximum because I didn't know. The bank said, how much do you want? I said, how much can I get? They said this number. I said, great. Lo and behold, I created my first alligator property. It was uncomfortable. I, reg- I regretted paying that mortgage every month because I was stupid. Yeah. Never buy alligators. I read the book. Never. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Never buy or create alligators. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, why don't we talk about rate and term refi? Because that may be a term. Uh, it's actually uh, it's actually something I'm doing today on a couple of commercial properties, actually. I'm doing a rate and term refi. So let's tell people what that cool. is. Cool. Yeah. And that that term, um, a lot of folks get confused because when you say cash out refinance, it's self-explanatory. Cash out refinance equals you get cash out. Mm-hmm. Rate and term refi basically means you're not getting cash out. Mm-hmm. And and what the rate and term is, is, is you're changing the rate and you're changing the term. Yep. So so you're, you're making an adjustment there, but you're not pulling any cash out. You're just paying off your existing debt. And so, um, you know, for, for simple terms, I think people can just think about rate and term is no cash out. Cash out refinance is taking cash out. Yeah. So let's just give you the real examples. I always share what I'm doing. So for example, I bought a couple apartment buildings. Let's say it was 2010. I think it might've been 11, but let's say 2010. I think the interest rates we had on them were 6%, maybe it was six and a quarter. So what has happened? Well, I've had 11. So first off, the term was 25 years, right? Commercial is different than residential. So it was 25. Um, it had prepayment penalties, which I guess will be the next term we talk about. I think it was 54321. Uh, and then, uh, so I got to this year, I can do, I'm doing a rate and term, which the rate's going from, let's call it six to four. But here's the magic, the term, because again, I've done 11 years of pay down, right? So I had 14 years left. I'm taking the term back up to 25. So what does that do for me? I get a double whammy, which means I get to save on my mortgage payment. I've expanded the term from what is only 14 years left back to 25. And I've taken an interest rate of six to four. So as you might suspect, my monthly payment's going to go from four to two or something like that ratio, uh, which again, for me, just adds positive cash flow, which is the business I'm in of doing. So again, rate and term makes a lot of sense um, you know, when it's going down. And in theory, even if rates went up a little bit, if you if if the term was being stretched out long enough, you could in theory, um, you don't even have a lower payment in that example. Right, right. Very cool. Well, let's talk about prepayment penalty because I just talked about it. Five, four, three, two, one. Um, you know, let's you know, let's use a, a loan of two hundred grand. What, what does it mean when I had a five, four, three, two, one prepayment penalty? Yeah, I mean that sounds like a commercial thing more than more than you'd see it in residential. But is is it? Is, is that the points being paid in each year? Five, four, no. three, two, one. So what it is, is if I refied in the first year, I owed five points. If I refied okay. in the second year, refied or sold, let's be clear, refi right. or sold. I owed, so let's just do the real example because I just went through this with my bank. 
So if I had a 200K loan and I had, and I wanted to sell it or refi or I died or, or whatever, right? We had to sell it. I would owe the bank 10 grand, five, five, five points times 200. If I sold it in the second year, I'd owe eight grand. In the third year, six grand. In the fourth year, whatever, whatever it is. It just scaled down, right? Because commercial lenders want, I don't know why they do that, but they got the money, they make up the rules. So it's very common to have a five, four, three, two, one, a three, two, one. Are the new loans being written today still having those? I think I, I have a three, two, one on the new loan. Okay. Okay. And this is an important distinction for some people. If you're five units and up doing commercial, mm-hmm. there's one set of rules. If you're one to four in my world of residential, prepayment penalties are very rare, especially in the conventional conforming sure. space. Um, super, super common 2005 through 2009. Oh, yeah. and, you know, I, I got into a loan where it was um, a 228 with a three-year prepay. And so you know, my, my loan was going to adjust after two years and I couldn't do anything about it because if mm-hmm. I pre, if I, if I paid off my loan within three years, um, I would get in trouble. And so this, this is a common question I get, which I get to gladly explain, no, there's no prepay and, and hardly any conventional conforming loans are ever going to have a prepayment penalty. So you can pay extra payments every month. You can pay off the loan in full. You can sell your house in a year and a half, any of that there's not going to be any any penalty. The one place I still see it is the non-QM mm-hmm. um, space, which is just um, alternative type financing. Where if you come to me and say I don't make any money on paper, but I've I've got a property that cash flows and I've got great credit and I want to put thirty percent down, a debt service coverage ratio loan like I'm talking about, that might have a six percent interest rate with um, a two year prepay. Well, it might be like a two one in your case where it's like you pay it off in the first year, you pay two points, you pay it off in the second year, you pay a point. Then after two years, you have no more prepay. There you go. Yeah. Again, these are something that will happen a lot in commercial. Actually, I'm not, I don't think I've ever done a commercial loan without some type of prepay. I want to make sure that's true. I think that's true. I can't remember one not having a prepay. It, again, it, again, we're doing, usually I'm doing loans that are fixed for five or 10 years. So the prepay is only the first part of that. So it's not an issue for me. Because I, again, I buy stuff to keep forever, so it's okay. Uh, but you're right. Back in 2008 and 9, a lot of my loans had some kind of prepay. Because again, that was how banks were making money, right? If you, again, that was the story, right? Things go up forever. Refi in two years, and, and they were just <laughs> it's crazy. So let's I'm talk curious because I'm oh, just one quick question on that while we're on it because I'm curious because I'm not in the commercial space a lot. But so that 25 year term, mm-hmm. um, does it only have a certain amount of, of of fixed in there? Is it five or 10 years fixed and then it adjusts? Yes. Yeah. I, I, again, you can get fully fixed, you know, 25 or 30 year loans, but that's typically much bigger. Uh, the longest term I've gotten fixed is 10 years. Okay. It's fixed for the first 10. Yeah. Then it's tied to some sort of yeah, LIBOR, or, LIBOR something. or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so let's talk about an escrow account. A lot of people wonder, um, what is it? Why do you do it? Do you, should you do it? What's it do on it? Why does it show up on my mortgage statement? I don't know what's going on. Where, who, who's got my money? Yeah, this, this is a popular video on my channel. What is an escrow account? And I made the video because it was such a popular question I got from clients that um, I kept trying to get better at explaining it. Because I would explain it to somebody and then I would have the, I don't get it. And then I explained it a second time and I don't get it. Because what happens is an escrow account by definition is the lender, the bank, whoever's servicing the mortgage for you is holding money in what is essentially a savings account. 
and they're going to pay your taxes and insurance. Every six months, property taxes are due. Once a year, your, your hazard insurance is due. And so the bank is holding it and making those payments. Every month, you're putting a little chunk so that when the next payment is due, they have enough to pay it. And the, the confusion, Mike, comes when somebody looks at a settlement statement and they go, I'm paying a six-month property tax bill. I'm paying my first year of homeowner's insurance. And you also want me to pay three or four months of homeowner's insurance and three months of property taxes? Am I, am I double paying? What's going on here? And so I've tried to explain to people that, you know, you're going to close a loan in March. And April is when the county wants their six-month installment due. So you're paying that six-month installment through the close of your loan. You're closing in March. You're not making a mortgage payment until May. Mm -hmm. And so the next installment that's due six months from now, we've only got May, June, July. You know, there might only be five months of collecting one-twelfth of what that annual uh, tax bill is. And so the mortgage company, they've, or the servicer has got calculations. Mm -hmm. They're not going to hold too much of your money. They can't. By law, they can't have too much in there, but they also have to have a little bit of reserves for inevitable fluctuations. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a little extra in there. The good news is, is that they're super transparent about it. Every oh, yeah. single month you get a mortgage statement, 17, 84 and 59 cents is in your escrow account. You put $350 towards it next month and the month after and the month after, then when your mortgage, uh, homeowner's insurance is, I'm sorry, homeowner's insurance is due or your taxes are due. It, it clearly tells you we sent a disbursement for $3,300 here. And we took that out of your escrow account. Yeah. Again, escrow accounts, in my opinion, are built again to protect the lender, right? There are two things that will happen on every loan. They will require insurance, right? They want insurance on the asset just in case it burns down or floods or whatever. And they want the property taxes paid because the only thing that can jump the line is if property taxes aren't paid and they, you know, the state takes it back. So again, the lender is trying to protect itself. I don't know if it's common now, but I remember, I think it was on our primary home. If we agreed to get uh, escrow an account, we got, we saved an eighth on our interest rate. I don't know if that's common yeah. today, but I, I had that happen. It just recently changed where I, if somebody wanted to waive escrows and say, listen, I'm going to take care of my tax and insurance. I don't want the lender to do it. I'm going to do it. We used to, there used to be a hit at a lot of lenders, meaning ah. a slightly higher price in the last 18 to 24 months. Most lenders have said, listen, as long as you fit the criteria, which for conventional loans at a lot of lenders is you got to be under 90% loan to value. Mm. But as long as you're not you know, a 5% down, three and a half percent down, you want to waive escrows, go ahead on, take care of that yourself. Hmm. Um, I'd add on to that besides protecting the lender, I talk to a lot of people. Hmm. I, I talk to a lot of people about finances. Um, most people aren't the best at budgeting. Mm -hmm. For most people, it's a good idea. You know, yeah. you don't want to have a $3,300 tax bill come up and you not be prepared for it. Um, so, so I think it's, it's really in a lot of people's best interest. There's, the people that I talk to the most that say, I don't want to escrow. The reasoning is as somebody who's self-employed, my income fluctuates. And when I get a big commission check, I want to pay my property taxes and I want to have that done. Something like that. But for yeah. the most part, I think it's the, the set it and forget it, budget every single month exactly what they need to pay tax and insurance can be a good thing. 
Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just be upfront. I think I think seventy percent of our loans have an escrow account, and the ones that don't were set up at a time because again we've had loans for decades now where it just wasn't common or maybe we weren't thinking about. It. I generally think escrow is a good thing because again for me, for me it's time. I'll, I'll be honest. I I don't want to be reminded to pay my <laughs> my taxes and insurance. Yeah. I, if somebody else wants that headache, go right ahead. Yeah. Do all that accounting work for me and don't charge me anything for it. Cause there's no charge. They're, there's they're no doing charge. that for you. There's no charge. And, and a lot of the pushback is like, that's my money. I'm going to put it somewhere. I'm going to gain interest, set it in your bank account and, and collect 34 cents a year yeah. and, and have that extra 30 to 45 minutes of work per year. If you're, if you're good with working for 19 cents an hour, more power to you. Yeah. So two more terms I want to hit before we kind of wrap up this uh, video today. Let's talk about mortgage insurance. Sure. Mortgage insurance is, is a common one. And there's, there's misconceptions out there. I'll try to hit on some of those. Whenever you're putting less than 20% down on a home loan, mortgage insurance is going to be required. And I already hear people in the background. It's not always required. There's some loans that have less than 20% down where mortgage insurance isn't required. Well, it's, it's baked in. It's lender paid mortgage insurance if you're not paying it. So it, so it's required. Somebody's um, paying it. Somebody's paying it. It's getting paid somewhere. And so um, you do an FHA loan with three and a half percent down. You do a conventional loan with 5% down in order to protect the bank against what is extra risk because there's less skin in the game. Mm -hmm. They're going to charge you mortgage insurance. And it's easy to know what mortgage insurance is on an FHA loan because you can take that 0.85% calculation and just say $400,000 loan. 0.85%, divide that by 12. Hmm. And I don't have a calculator in front of me, but that's what your monthly mortgage insurance payment is. For conventional loans, it's it's different. And it's okay. based on loan to value and it's based on credit score. So part of the conversation and assessment when you're talking to somebody and I'm going to put down three or 5% on, on a home loan, I don't know whether I should do FHA or conventional, is you know, how much are you putting down? What's your credit score? Because if you've got an 800 credit score and you're putting 5% down, your mortgage insurance is gonna be super, that, that factor instead of 0.85 might be 0.23. And I'm ah. guessing at numbers, I'm not giving exact examples, but conventional so, mortgage- so, so, so mortgage insurance also scales based on the riskiness of the borrower. Correct. Wow, um, I didn't know the, that. The, the caveat though is not for FHA. FHA just says, this is our flat mortgage insurance fee. Got it. So, to, okay. That's what you mean by conventional lender. So, you know, right. Wells Fargo versus FHA. And so I've had, I did the math just so we can, we can put the video in there, right? FHA loan, 400 grand, 0.85% of that uh, will ultimately equal $283 and 33 cents a month. That's right. the cost of the insurance premium. And, and here's the funny, well, not funny thing, but here's the thing to, to think about is if you come to me and you've got a 655 credit score mm -hmm. or you've got a 725, that's the same 283. Okay. But if you've got a 655 and I run it conventional, you might pay 350 on a conventional loan. Whereas if you've got a 780 credit score, you might pay $72 a month. Interesting. And it makes sense that a lot higher credit score. The bank sees you as less risk. They're going to charge you less mortgage insurance. Conventional mortgage insurance has come down so much in the last couple of years that I try to at least have the conversation with people. 
people that are really anti-mortgage insurance. Well, I listened to Dave Ramsey or my aunt Sue. Somebody mm -hmm. told me I should never pay mortgage insurance. You can do 5% down on, on these size loans, Mike, and have the, you know, it'd be one fourth of that, you know, like a 0.22 or 0.23 factor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you put 10% down, it's even lower. So maybe wow. at 10%, it's only $52 a month. So let me, let me run this by you. Cause again, I'm, this is uh, this, this, I mean, I know what it is. Obviously I didn't know it scaled. I didn't know there was variation between F15 and conventional. I'm learning stuff. That's why I love this channel. So what I heard, what I think I heard you say is folks like you in the broker's position, if you're putting 5% down or something less than 20%, most of your business, if it's a lower credit borrower, will go to FHA because it's fixed. And then what you're saying is the better qualified buyer at some credit level will go banks. So is it fair to say that FHA is just this collection of, I guess, riskier loans? I don't know what else to say. Yeah. I mean, FHA is, you know, when I, when I talk to people about what FHA lending is, mm -hmm. they're, they're less strict. On, on credit requirements, Got they're it. less strict on debt to income ratios as well. So, so those debt to income ratios are going to go and, and maybe that's part of the reason why these loans hmm. have a function of that mortgage insurance does not go away on FHA loans. It, it used to fall off at a certain point as of a few years ago, they just said it's on there for the life of the loan. Um, and so the ones that make it out, you know, get refinanced into a conventional loan where it will either be taken off with the refinance or it'll, it'll fall off naturally when you get to 80% loan to value. But yeah, I mean, I guess there, you know, the FHA product is meant um, for borrowers who just, you know, they got a little, little hair on the file, a little, little ding or whatever. Cool. Okay. All right. So our last kind of uh, vocabulary or discussion point is going to be P I T I. What is it? Yep. That? It's principal interest Taxes, taxes, insurance. I don't know why I blanked there. Let me help you. <laughs> more, more, more coffee, more yeah, coffee. Um, but yeah, you, you'll, you'll hear somebody and it's funny because on my end, some people will throw terms back at me. So they'll, they'll want a, a, a scenario to be run and what's my PITI. And that's basically your whole payment. Yeah. So when, when you pay that's your the payment, number you write the check for. Right, right. So you're paying your, your, your mortgage company, the principal interest taxes and insurance. And, and that's the payment that when you're looking to buy a house, you definitely want to look at that payment. You don't want to look at, you know, you pop on a Zillow and, and you use a calculator and it says, you buy this house and the payment's 1283. If it doesn't include tax and insurance, it's it's not what you're paying monthly. So it's not a really good indicator of of, uh, of that. So um, yeah, that, that one too, um, you can include mortgage insurance in that as well yep. because- It's the know, full so payment. Sometimes, some, sometimes there's two I's in there because there's, there's a yeah. hazard insurance and there's mortgage insurance, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's basically your, your whole payment and, and you'll see that thrown around here and there. So if you see PITI, yeah. know that it stands for principal interest taxes insurance. Very cool, man. So one thing I want to ask you, we didn't prepare this, but again, you and I look at the mortgage market all the time. I think the 10 year notes actually come down uh, from a week or so ago. So I'm curious if interest rates have rolled over slightly uh, in the last yeah. 48 hours. They, well, they, they, they have slightly, and it's been a slow tick since that January 6th date yeah. where I think Wednesday through Friday, six, seven, eight, and then the following Monday, Tuesday, yeah. I had five straight days of, of oh. red yeah. and, 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 and I was red meaning they went rate, up. Yeah. Rates yeah. Went up. Rates up. And I think the stuff I priced yesterday 
was right about at January 5th levels. So I think yeah. we got it all back. Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> close. Yeah, it's, that's what I was seeing as well. So, hey, buddy, thank you very much again. Please, if somebody's in California or somebody wants to talk mortgages, how should they reach out to you? Matt, M-A-T-T at MattTheMortgageGuy.com. Send that email. Somebody on the team will make sure it gets to me. We'll answer your question uh, the best we can. If we can help and assist with a purchase or refi, we're happy to. If it's just a, a random question, um, happy to help with that as well. And if you want really straightforward, good mortgage advice, Matt, the mortgage guy on YouTube, go subscribe to that channel. Very cool, man. And again, you can do business in California, but you're happy to talk anywhere. Right, right. And, you know, I used to, I used to pick up phone calls from every area code. Then I realized, you know, 10, 15 minute conversations times 50 per week for the guy in Tennessee who wants to talk about his debt to income ratio. I love everybody. I love to help everybody, but I really can't. So send an email if you're out of state and just explain your scenario. Because a lot of times I can reply in a minute and just say, you know what? It looks good. In your scenario, based on what you told me, things are good. You're getting a good deal. This is totally common. And I think that's what people want more often than not is like, Hey, my lender told me this, but they're the one getting paid on the deal. Yeah, are, they, exactly. are they shooting straight with me? And sometimes it's, yeah, they're shooting straight with you. And sometimes it's like, I'd probably talk to a second person. There you go. Well, thanks buddy. I appreciate your time. Have a wonderful yep, day. Thanks Mike. Mm -hmm.